Well, good morning, church family. We still have a reason to praise. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it out and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I hope you get into the habit of bringing a printed copy of God's Word to church. If you don't do that normally, I would encourage you as your pastor to do that. But even if you have a device with an app on your phone, I want you to find the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. DJ, be careful. My wife says that to me a lot. When we first fell in love, she would lead with, I love you. I look forward to seeing you. But now, since I am basically the financier for a lot of people's lives, she says, be careful. I don't know if you've ever done any personality tests in your life. Sometimes they're fun. Don't overanalyze yourself. We're all new in Christ. But it is kind of cool to kind of see what kind of person you are. I don't know if you have anybody in your life the way Laurel has her husband in her life, but I'm a little intense, just a little bit. And I'm a little driven, and I like to get things done. I like to work hard. I like to play hard. I like to go, 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 go. That does not lend itself to being careful. So I'm prone to injury. I've had many, many stitches and busted knuckles and things that are painful because of my own rate at which I try to do things. I don't mind hard work, but I like to get it done so that I can go do the things that I enjoy doing. I remember once I was blowing the leaves out of the gutter with my backpack blower, a big one. Homie don't play. I mean a big one. And so I'm up on the roof, and it doesn't bother me. I did construction work all through college when it wasn't football season, and so I'm not afraid of heights, and I've been up on the roof, and I fell off the roof. Laurel said she was in the house, and she heard the backpack blower on the roof, and all of a sudden, she walked out on the back porch, and I'm laying on my back on top of the blower. I remember distinctly her hair blowing because the blower's pointed up. And this is at a point where even as a husband, uh, ladies, we're probably more tender than you realize. I wanted her to say, oh, my darling. I wanted her to slide her beautiful legs under my head and put my head in her lap and stroke my hair and say, sweetheart, are you okay? That's not what I got. I got, what did you do? The obvious answer is, the one I gave, I'm not sure I gave it with great eloquence. I'm not sure it was rather righteous in my speech, but I said, what does it look like I did? I fell off the roof. And then she commenced to saying, you cannot leave me with all these children. Be careful. I said, that's all you have to say to me? And I'm yelling over the leaf blower that's still running. And she went back in the house, and a few moments later, she appeared with some a leave and a Dr. Pepper, and I think that was her way of trying to make up for it. That same year, I knocked myself out. I was throwing a piece of lumber into a construction trailer because I was doing a remodeling job at the home we used to live in, and I heaved it. It was way too heavy for one person, but who in here cares about that? I heaved it, and it hit the side of the dumpster and spun, and when it did, it hit me in the back of the head. The next thing I know, I wake up looking up, and my neighbor who likes Marlboros said, You all right, preacher? <laughs> and I said, Yeah, I'll be okay. No, I did. I did. I did. My, again, Laurel said, What did you do? 
Once I was on a mission trip and I shot my hand with a nail gun, done that a couple of times, and that's not fun. I remember coming back and telling everybody, your pastor has the nail-scarred hand. But anyway, <laughs> she says, be careful. When you think about being careful, how do we define it? Well, the Oxford Dictionary defines being careful this way, making sure of avoiding potential danger, mishap, or harm, i.e. to be cautious. The act of being careful, careful is something that's done with or showing thought and attention. Slow down. Think about what you're doing and be careful. Anybody in this room that is raising children knows that the last thing you say every time your teenager leaves, especially if they are operating a vehicle, is, son, sweetheart, be careful. I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 only, but I'm going to preach the rest of the passage in just a moment. Paul is still stuck on leadership. He's talking about righteous leadership, biblical leadership, holy leadership of a church versus unrighteous, unbiblical, worldly, and superficial. And Paul says ultimately in one verse, be Careful. Let me read that verse to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Now look at the last phrase of verse 10. This is the central idea of this sermon. Let each one take care how he builds upon it the biblical translation of the English into the words take care could also be be careful. Do it with care. When we think about the church, more specifically the local church, we, we have to recognize that there is a portion of what happens here that only God can do. In fact, Paul stresses this over and over in our passage last week. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but it is God who gives the growth. That's an agricultural metaphor. He's using planting of a field, the harvest that a farmer reaps from nature as an analogy. He's saying, we do work, but God is ultimately the one who grows and produces the fruit. But then Paul switches from an agrarian metaphor to a building metaphor. In fact, with your Bible open to chapter 3, look at verse 9. It was the last verse of our sermon last week. If you were not able to be here for that or you were not able to tune in online, those are always available. I encourage you to always keep up with the series. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. You hear the agriculture reference? But then look how it ends. God's building. And it is that idea of the church, not the church physical, the building, but the church spiritual, the people of God, of the church being a building that God is overseeing, a construction project of spiritual and eternal nature. Now, Paul grabbing that last phrase of verse 9, then launches into this next paragraph about how we do 
what we do. As we built this series in 1 Corinthians, I reminded you last week that when we started the book of 1 Corinthians several months ago, we just said in a world full of organizations and groups and movements and agendas, it's never been more important for the church to be distinctive, to be the church, to be proud, not of ourselves sinfully, but to be proud to be the people of God. And any church that is strong, any church that is vibrant, needs strong, vibrant, biblical leadership. And of course, this applies to the role of the pastor that you privilege and honor me with being, but it's more than just one individual. It is the leadership of the congregation as a whole, as it manifests itself in various ministries. And in a world full of failed leadership, leadership in the church should look different. I get weary of reading the headlines of failed church leadership. I'm not upset. I don't struggle with recognizing that church leaders fail, that there are imperfect people leading imperfect people to the throne of a perfect God. No one should expect perfection in anyone's life, but righteousness Holiness, consistency, accountability, transparency, honesty, humility. These should characterize the leaders of a strong and healthy church, whether it be a small group leader, someone investing in students, someone loving on children, and certainly someone charged with the wonderful honor and privilege of leading and preaching through the Word of God. Now, that takes time, but we live in a have-it-now kind of world. In fact, in a world full of get-rich-quick schemes, overnight success, shortcuts, life hacks, have-it-now attitudes, we need to realize that if we're serious about building something special as a group of people, we better do it carefully. It matters. We all love to celebrate exponential growth. We, we, we love to see our small group take off. We, we love to see more students involved in the student ministry. We love to see the children's ministry teeming with life. We have a baby dedication coming up in a few weeks. And this morning, Nate said, we got 51 to dedicate. 51. Thank you, quarantine. <laughs> 51. Think about that. Now, now. We're all grateful for that. At the same time, I think it's important that this word from God be spoken over us. That we back up and say, in my part of being a part of this church and in my life as a Christ follower, am I building my ministry? Am I building my walk with Christ carefully? Am I paying attention to what I'm doing. The modern world has greatly sped up the building process. Some of you have had the difficult journey of trying to build a home during a supply chain breakdown. Many of you have told me that you have projects in your own life on hold. Some of you have had difficult situations where you've perhaps started to build a home or started to remodel something or you've started something in a business only to have the financing available, have the plan, have the labor ready, and you can't get supplies. And people get frustrated when it takes over a year 
or two or three to build a home. I remember waiting in anticipation to preach in this building and watching it day by day and week by week and month by month and wondering, is this ever going to come to fruition? This is a problem of modernity. And the reason is power equipment, logistics, equipment that moves and reshapes the earth has greatly sped up the rate at which human beings can build things. Let let me give you some examples. The White House took 13 years to build. 13 years to build the White House. Here's uh, another one. Solomon's Temple, 46 years. If you are younger than 46 in this room or you're watching online, and you're younger than 46, it took a greater amount of time to build the temple of God under Solomon's leadership than you have been alive. There's some even greater examples. St. Peter's Basilica there in Rome, 144 years to build. How'd you like to be in that superintendent? 144 years. I think one of the most comical ones I found in my research The Leaning Tower of Pisa, 199 years. You had 200 years, and it's still crooked. (laughs) 200. You couldn't buy a scaffold? 200 years. But perhaps the greatest on earth is the Great Wall of China. It took 2,000 years to build what is now the Great Wall of China. See, in the ancient world, The construction of anything took time. So it wasn't that just another subcontractor followed you. Another generation would follow you. You would start and work on a structure, and you would work on it, and you could give the better part of your life to it as a craftsman, die, be forgotten, and someone else would come along and build on top of what you have done. Now, this is the mind Paul had when he wrote this verse. I'll read it again. Look at verse 10. According to the grace given to me. And I love how Paul always qualifies that. He he always say, we got to build this thing carefully because this was given to us by God. According to the grace given to me, build it carefully. How did he do it? Like a skilled master builder. Now, that may sound a little bit arrogant, but that's because it's lost in translation. This is what he's saying. I I was put in charge of laying the foundation here in Corinth, and I did so like a skilled master builder. Now, if you were to go on a large construction site today, first of all, you you don't just walk onto a large construction site. Uh, OSHA policies and safety procedures require that you check in. There is usually some sort of work trailer or temporary office. And if you have reason to believe to be there and you are not equipped, they will hand you a hard hat and it will be required for you to be on site. And if you're on site and you need to speak to anybody, you ask, Who is the superintendent over this job? The superintendent might not be swinging a hammer or laying a block, but the superintendent is in charge of all of it. You don't start being a superintendent your first day on the job. Most of those guys in construction start out as laborers, and they develop a skill. And then not only do they have a skill, they have the ability to oversee various parts. The superintendent of a job site won't know everything there is to know about every subcontractor's specific work. 
but he'll know enough to coordinate the sequence of events that have to happen and the supply chain that needs to be on site for his subs to do their work and to do them well. So he is in charge. He has the final say. In the original language, this is what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, I was sent to Corinth as the superintendent. I knew the gospel because God's grace had given it to me. You did not have it. I came there, and I didn't do it haphazardly. I did it very carefully. And what did Paul do? Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, according to the grace given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation. But then he says, and someone else is building upon it. So Paul shows that three people involved. Jesus gave me his grace. I laid the foundation, and other people are building upon it. The Apostle Paul's never been to Moore. Never been to Roebuck. Never been to North America. Yet we build on the foundation of the apostles in the New Testament who gave us the gospel. So Paul is ultimately speaking to you and to me. See, in the New Testament, God loved this analogy. Think about how Peter said it. Peter, when he's talking about the church, says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So he takes the structure everybody's familiar with, the temple for Peter's listeners, church buildings for you and I, and he says, just like the building has different parts, you are a part, but you're not a dead piece of sheetrock. You're not a lifeless board. You're not an inanimate brick. You're a living stone. Living stones built up as spiritual house. What? To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, we know because of Jesus' finished work on the cross that we don't sacrifice the blood of animals anymore. Paul makes that connection in Romans 12 when he says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You don't have to bleed for God. He bled for you. So because he bled for you, live for him. Because he died, you live. Now, that's Peter. Notice what Paul does in the book of Ephesians. I read this to every new member in our church during the new member class. Rather, talking about the church, you and me, in contrast to the world, rather speaking the truth in love, we, not just the gal on the stage, not just the gal singing, not just the small group leader, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. But this is the part I always stress. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. So Paul here is using the analogy of a body. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it, notice the language, builds itself up in love. So there's this tension. On one hand, God does it. God saves, God gives his spirit, God's given us his word, God moves in your life, he convicts you of sin, he forgives you, he guides you, he loves you, he restores you. In fact, you just sang three or four beautiful songs about the greatness of God and how no matter what we're going through, we still have a reason to praise. We, we can't move away from championing that. But the fascinating thing is that in this revelation of God's grace, we got a part to play we got a building to build, not a physical building. They'll come and they'll go. This building, as beautiful as it is, it, it'll be pushed over one day. It'll be condemned. It will dilapidate. Time will take its toll. But a spiritual building, 
And a spiritual building where every board matters, every brick counts, every single part of it has a role to play and has the opportunity to either make the building stronger or weaker. And when you look at that, you can see why Paul says, you better build it carefully. You better build it carefully. So how do you do that? Well, thankfully, he tells us. Look what the Bible continues to say in verses 11 down through the end of our passage, verse 15. For no one, verse 11, can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, notice the capital D, I'll come back to that, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. There are at least three truths you better pay attention to when you build a church. And by the way, church member, guest, friend, these are absolutely the same in your own life. Whether you're building a marriage, whether you're building the faith of children, whether you're building a business, whether you're building your own witness, you need to pay attention to these three truths. Number one, you better pay attention to where we build. There is only one place to build the church. I'm not speaking of a country, a culture, a people group. I'm speaking of a foundation. No one pours a foundation here and builds the house next door. You can only build a building on its foundation. A couple years ago, we were blessed with this facility. I don't know what your favorite part be based on what I can see some of you love the cafe. Others of you like a certain chair you always sit in. Maybe you like the comfortable seating. Maybe it's the large, expansive restrooms where you never have to wait. It may be the children's wing. I don't know what your favorite part of the building is, but I'll tell you mine. In February of 2018, I was on my way back to the campus from a lunch meeting. That's what I do. I preach and eat lunch. And uh, I was on my way back from a lunch meeting and Lawrence Kine, a member of our church who's overseeing the project, said, hey, DJ, you around? I said, I actually just pulled back on the campus. He said, you may want to come over and see this. This is pretty significant. And this is what I walked up on. Take a look at this. So that is the first yard of concrete poured on this building. And I remember standing there thinking how significant this is. You'll never see that concrete get in. It's not even a part of the slab. It's a part of the footing under the slab. But it was significant because so many of you had worked so hard alongside me and others to get to a point where we were actually going from dirt to something that was being built. 
And in reality, as beautiful as the veneer is, as awesome as the sound system is, as wonderful as the technology is, which allows me to impact many of you who are sitting in the comfort of your home, perhaps you're out of town, you may be home with a sick child today, and you're watching online. As wonderful as those things are, without that footing, none of this could exist. And even if we tried to build it on sand, Jesus told us what would happen if you build on sand. Which is why Paul says in verse 11, look at the text. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Churches can look different. Ministries can take different shapes. But if you are distinctively Christian, there is only one foundation. Now, I know that may seem obvious, but let me kind of unpack what that means. What does it mean to lay the church on a foundation of Christ. Here's what matters. It literally means that the foundation of the church is based off the coming of the Son of God in the flesh. The suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That, of course, is followed by the reality of forgiveness and restoration for everyone who accepts Christ in true faith. Without that, there's no foundation. The gift of the Holy Spirit who reveals, convicts, sanctifies, and guides. And then all of that is given to us through the revelation of God in his holy and inerrant word. If this is not present and central, you might have an organization. You may have an edifice. You could have a bell tower or a steeple. You do not have a church. I got many texts this week where a congregation in the upstate, specifically in Greenville, has invited a drag queen to come this month and deliver a message about affirming that particular lifestyle. What's amazing to me is the number of Christians that are in shock of this. What you find, though, when you pull back the layers on those organizations, they stopped being a church of Christ years ago. There is no respect for the gospel or the word of God. In fact, if you were to look up this particular church, you can Google it if you want. Their mission statement is nothing more than social activism. It's built on nothing more than whatever our current cultural conversation is. God loves people. He loves people who are confused and hurting and need his love. And the church should extend that love to any person, no matter their inter-struggles, no matter where they may find themselves confused. But God's word has not changed. And the scripture is extraordinarily clear about God's desire for sexuality, for marriage, for masculinity, for femininity. And so when churches lose the foundation of Christ, it's nothing more than a slippery slope into an immoral soup of anything goes. So then you only have one thing to do, and that is to figure out what people are talking about and go try to be loving and accepting of that. And this, of course, is what we cannot do. We can love people. We can care for their needs. But we must remember our foundation is Christ. Their greatest need is salvation. And if we water that down, if we ever move away from that, then we're not a church anymore. We're a civic organization, a nonprofit that loves to look like we're loving people. 
But that type of superficial love only makes people temporarily happy as they march into an eternity without Christ in hell. I will never be a part of that. Pay attention to where you build. Secondly, pay attention to what you build with. You ever sit down with a contractor to build a home or maybe remodel something? Let me tell you the guy you don't hire. You don't hire the guy that says, you know what we try to do? We try to use the cheapest materials possible. We pay very little attention to your plans or the building codes. We're not interested in any way of doing this well, but we will do it fast. You wouldn't hire that guy. You wouldn't hire that guy. In fact, temporarily it might seem good. Look how quick the job was done. But then the paint job looks bad. The sheet rock begins to crack. Every time you flip the light switch, the toilet flushes. The materials matter. Materials matter. Look what Paul says in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, we've established what that is, Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work, verse 13, will become manifest for the day. Now, the capital D is a reference to judgment day. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, you can't over-spiritualize the list, but there are six materials listed. Let me read those again to you. Verse 12, or verse 11, for, or verse 12, rather. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, those are the first three. The common denominator in those is they're valuable and they do not burn. But then look at the second three. Wood, hay, straw. They're cheaper, more easily gotten, and they certainly burn. In the ancient Near East, if you wanted to build anything beautiful, anything that was going to last a generation, you built it out of stone. Now, of course, we use wood in construction, but no sooner that you build a two-before wall, what do you do? You nail or you screw sheetrock to it. Sheetrock is primarily a fire retardant. You would be amazed at the hundreds of thousands of dollars of fire retardant material in this building alone. The sprinkler system and the complexity of that is far beyond anything I can understand. And the reason is, is the greatest threat to a facility, of course, is fire. Now, while we would hate to lose a facility in a fire, what we would really hate is for any individual or group to be harmed in the case of a fire. And so there are safety procedures and all types of codes that we must build to, especially when we open our doors to the public. But your home is no different. If you build a modern home, there are fire alarms in your home. There are certain requirements of, of uh, fire breaks. There are all kinds of procedures that are put in. And there are ways in which you should educate your family in the case of a fire. And why? Because fire destroys everything in its path. And so Paul says, when you build a church, don't build it on cheap stuff. What does that mean spiritually? Well, D.A. Carson's a New Testament scholar that many, many people have read and enjoyed. And he said it better than I could, so I'll just read what he said. If the church is being built with large portions of charm, personality, easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences, and people smarts, but without the repeated, passionate, 
spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Remember chapter 1? We may be winning more adherents than converts. There's nothing wrong with people who have gifted personalities and charisma. There's nothing wrong with beautiful facilities and programs. There's nothing wrong with planning camps like was advertised earlier in the service. There's nothing wrong with programs and ministries. They impact many people's lives. As I preach this sermon, my wife is serving right now in our special needs ministry. And that is one of many ministries that are impacting people's lives. And without the organization, without the volunteer, without the training, those things don't happen. Those are not bad, but they are tools and means to an end, which is to call people into a right relationship with Christ and to walk with him, which is why at Church of the Meal, our vision statement has nothing about our programs. It's got everything to do with you. The goal of us is that you gather, grow, give, and go. That, that you gather in the name of Christ in worship and in your small group, that you grow with your word in your hand, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday morning, that, that you be willing to pour your life into someone else, that, that you give, that when you write that offering check, you say, Lord, you have been so good to me, I'm offering back a portion of what you have given me to bless someone else and to further your kingdom. And I'm willing to serve just moment ago as you were singing the last song, I stepped in a room backstage to grab my Bible and I saw a gentleman walk by twice who's a part of our security team. He's on a detail and your car has been patrolled all morning. There are men walking the facility just to make sure it's safe and clean and if there's an issue, we can minister to someone. Those are the types of activities that help build the church. It's not flashy. It's not something that draws a lot of attention, but it puts you in a position to be encouraged. Why? Because those doors are going to open in just a moment, and when they do, you're going to go. You're going to go. I got off a plane last night at midnight. That's not normal for me. When I got into my 40s, I start getting grumpy on Saturdays. I'm ready to go to bed. I got to have my rest. I don't recover like I used to, and so I've tried to increase my sleep, but I had a neat opportunity this week, and so this week I was turkey hunting in Wyoming. Pray for me. But I was turkey hunting in Wyoming. And I was sitting on the edge of a mountain at the base of the Bighorn Mountains outside of Buffalo, Wyoming. We were glassing for turkeys. And uh, you might say, you are a turkey to go to Wyoming and sit on the side. And I was talking with my guide about his faith in Christ. He converted to Catholicism because his wife was a devout Catholic. And he was talking about the impact her faith had made on her life. And he asked me, he said, What's the difference between a Catholic and a Baptist? I love those questions. And of course, I didn't spend a lot of time criticizing his faith tradition. I certainly didn't try to convert him to being a Baptist, though we'll take him. We'll take them all. What I really talked about was the finished work of Jesus and how salvation comes by faith alone in the death and resurrection of Jesus and how there's no ceremony, no sacrament, no ritual that delivers the grace of Jesus into my life. It comes like an unending fountain of mercy turned on the moment I look to Christ and believe upon him. I hope you would answer that. 
And if we, by the hundreds and thousands, go out and share that, that's gold, that's silver, that's precious stones, and that makes an impact. Which leads to the final thing we must pay attention to. Pay attention to why you build, to why we build. Some people say modern preaching doesn't deal with sin and judgment anymore. Well, I'd hope that you believe that whenever we get to a text that deals openly with sin, I preach on sin. Doesn't mean I'm mad at you every day, and it certainly doesn't mean I'm going to try to scare the you-know-what out of you every Sunday. But judgment's coming. Now, for the Christian, upon salvation, you need not worry about being judged whether or not you deserve heaven. Let me answer that. You didn't. Christ did. God gave you Christ's righteousness. So no one who's in Christ needs to face death worried about whether or not they're going to heaven. John said, I have written these things so that you may know that you can have eternal life. It always hurts my heart when I meet someone who says they're a Christian and I ask them about their relationship with Christ and they say, yeah, I know the Lord. And then I say, are you going to heaven? And they say, I hope so. That is either a confused Christian or someone who's not truly saved. When you're saved, you know not based on your emotions or your feelings or your performance that day, but on your faith in the finished work of Christ. That's what I told my God on that mountainside in Wyoming two days ago. But we will be judged by what we have done with the grace God has given us. The outcome of that judgment is not our entrance into heaven. Salvation is assured. But you will give an account for the life you live and the steward of God's grace you are. And one of the sad and sobering realities of Paul's text is that there are some Christians who are truly saved, leading and being a part of churches, and yet the church work is so superficial, it will not last into eternity. Now, I don't want you to think I'm putting words in Paul's mouth. Listen to the text again, verse 14. If the work, notice he's not talking about the soul. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What does this mean? Well, it means... That as Christians, once we're saved, we're not taken home to be with Jesus because we're left here that we may bring glory and honor to him and make his name known. We do that together. And when we together, if we could turn that into a verb, that's the church. So you have chosen to together here at Church at the Mill. Unless you're a guest from out of town, if this is your church, if this is the church you're a part of, you have said, I am a child of the king, and as a child of the king delivered into this generation and living in this area, zip code, region, I am choosing to together to be with these groups of believers. And therefore, while I am here, I am called not to just sit and soak, but to leverage my life so that more glory could be given to God and that more people could come to know him. So whether or not you realize it, you are doing work, and that work will be judged. Now, specifically, 
If I were speaking to a group of pastors this morning, I would say the direct application is to those in my position, in church leadership, to always remember you can do stuff in the name of Jesus that won't last past your funeral. I see modern-day churches built on marketing schemes and momentum that are not making any eternal impact in people's lives. One of the most difficult yet insightful experiences of my summer last year was listening to the entire podcast produced by Christianity Today of the rise and fall of Mars Hill, a massive megachurch, multi-site, led by a guy named Mark Driscoll, and the whole thing imploded. Does it mean that people weren't saved? I'm not in any way making an accusation against Pastor Driscoll. I don't know him. I have never met him. I don't run in his circles. But the podcast, which is multiple weeks of investigation, shows so many worldly and superficial behaviors that drew people, that kept people, that manipulated people, and sadly that used people and burned them up and chewed them up and spit them out. And the moment he left in shame, the thing imploded and shut down. Thousands of people lost their church in one week. And the carnage is real. And it breaks my heart. But it was very sobering because one of the things you have to do is to not go, well, I'm glad that's not us. That's a worldly, selfish, immature reaction. What you ought to do is listen to something like this and say, Lord, I, I don't, I'm not in charge of those people and I trust your work in their life and I believe you can pick up the pieces and help individuals, but Lord, make sure we don't ever go down that path. Lord, whatever you need to do in our life, it's one of the reasons why about 10 weeks before the pandemic hit in 2020, I put this slide on the screen. The next chapter of our journey will become a church of our region with multiple locations. And I showed you this map. Did you know as of a month ago, press release, Greenville, South Carolina is the second fastest growing city in the nation. Let me tell you how to figure that out. Drive. You may think, well, we're in the buckle of the Bible Belt. There are so many churches. There are, and we rejoice. We're not in competition, but many of them aren't reaching anyone. We have no rocks to throw. We'll help any church we can. But when I look at all that God has given us, it would be incredibly selfish for us to hoard it. Rather, we need to reproduce it. But we don't need to reproduce it without reproducing leaders. It's why a live individual man called of God is preaching in our Woodruff campus this morning and not me via a screen. It's why we need more people to launch more small groups. It's why we need more people to say, I've never discipled anybody, but I'm walking with Jesus and I'd be willing to. It's why it matters that for those of you sitting on the fence need to say, you know what, it's time for us to become covenant members. So some of you enjoy the fruit of worship and have never served in any way. Others of you have been blessed financially in extraordinary ways, and yet your biblical giving is not up to par. I don't know how it manifests in your life, but I do want to ask you, if you were to stand before the Lord today, would you be proud of the work you laid before him? You don't have to worry about your soul if you're saved. But you ought to care and you ought to be careful to make sure you leverage your life in a way that what you are doing is eternal. In 1871, a massive fire swept through Chicago and burned three square miles of the city. St. Michael's Church survived. Now, the wood parts of the church did not 
But the walls were so well built, so thick with brick and mortar, that it gave that region of the city hope when the ashes cleared and the smoke settled, that there stood a church. This is two side-by-side pictures of it from a book of history. And I couldn't help but think of the symbolism that when the fires of God's judgment comes, that which has been laid on Christ and done well will last. The story is told of two bricklayers. You ever laid brick? I've laid enough to know I'm not a bricklayer. The story is told of two bricklayers laying brick and a passerby walked by and said, hey, what are you doing? One of them had a sour attitude, pretty short-sighted vision. He said, well, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm laying brick. The other one stood up, straightened up, and he said, I'm building a cathedral. Both of them are laying brick. But one understood what would come of brick by brick, row by row, wall by wall. You may say, Pastor, I don't feel like I have a big brick. I don't feel like I have a big board. I don't feel like I have a big role to play. I don't feel like I have the gifts to do what I see other Christians doing. Good news, God's not going to hold you responsible for other people's gifts. He's not going to hold you responsible for doing what other people are called to do. But he is going to look at your life and he's going to say, what did you build with what I gave you? Where are you building? What are we using? Why are we doing it? And then I'd have to ask as your pastor, what brick are you laying? I don't know what your next step is, but when I read this passage, if it's true, If I were you, I'd take it. I'd take the next step. 